there was actually a very interesting debate on Twitter between Kane versus Antonio. Uh, Kane from Synthetics say that YDX has never been decentralized. They've been run like a San Francisco fintech startup and decentralized tech is catching up and it's hard to pivot a culture of top-down hierarchical decision-making processes. And Kane basically further say that the pivot from Starkware to Cosmos had zero input from community. And Antonio basically responded by saying how you make serious technical progress is not by getting the committee of most of the token holders to agree. And he basically just straight up said, and I think I'm quoting him here, he doesn't care what token holders think of the product. He just cares what the user thinks. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. We got a great analyst episode lined up for you today. Um, we got Brick and Ren joining us today to chat all of the latest market happenings. But before we get into that, I want to talk about Das London quickly. Uh, it's a huge conference going on in London in March, and I'm personally fired up for the, the fellows from Steakhouse. They are coming. They're going to be part of a panel uh, where we're discussing the importance of financials in crypto. You know, this is something I personally work a lot on at Blockworks Research and think about deeply is at the end of the day, you know, blockchains are just on-chain economies. And within these economies are protocols or in the, they really look a lot like businesses. And so at the end of the day, businesses have financial statements and a, the use of blockchains really can kind of create this window into transparency um, and creating real-time financial statements. And so this is something that we're doing at Blockworks Research. We got, we'll have an exciting announcement around that coming out in a few months. Um, and the fellows at Steakhouse have really pioneered what that looks like. They've got some great Dune dashboards. They work closely with like Lido and MakerDAO and really bringing this out and, and making that stuff a reality. And I think it's really, really important for the maturity and growth of our industry. Uh, so personally, that's kind of what I'm looking for. But Sam, what are you looking forward to at Das London? Yeah, for me, it's twofold. One, I'm excited to go to London. Who doesn't want to go to London? And then two, I think right now is probably the most interesting time from the institutional standpoint in crypto. I mean, the spot ETF, you see coin catching a bid. You see Bitcoin miners perform, performing really well. And this has been like a very difficult environment to actually actively allocate capital. So I think people are taking notice. And I think right now everyone needs to really be keeping a close eye on what the institutions are doing. And this is the perfect way to actually uh, get ingrained, see on like boots on the floor, what's going on. So very, very excited about S London. Love it. Boots on the ground, baby. I think you used the term uh, bump shoulders with the with crypto's executives at one point too, and that's just so true. So for a limited time, we're running a 20% promo on a four-pack of DAS tickets. Again, this is in London this coming March. That's uh, about three, four months from now. So grab you and three of your friends and use code BLACKROCK0X. That's all caps, no spaces, BLACKROCK0X to catch us in sunny London town. And let's get into the show now. So we have, again, a good episode lined up. We got top movers, biggest losers, governance update, and of course, the classic hot seat cool drone. Um, but I'm actually going to get us moving here on the biggest mover. And so it's an interesting one. Sometimes we talk about price here. We you know, generally try to avoid that and make more interesting takeaways. Uh, but I'm actually going to go ahead and share my screen here for those that are uh, able to watch on YouTube as opposed to listen on Spotify. But for those listeners, I will talk you through what I'm looking at here as well. So the top mover of the week, I uh, actually have Avalanche transaction count. So uh, I want to use Blockworks research here to to kind of our analytics portal to explain an interesting anomaly I found uh, when just kind of you know looking through Avalanche data. So I talk it over to Avalanche into our on-chain activity section. And for those of you that are on YouTube viewing, you'll be able to see this dashboard, but I will verbally... Ver verbalize it for everybody who's just listening. So the transaction count for Avalanche has absolutely exploded. I actually noticed this 
uh, yesterday. So I was looking at the 1119 date with about 2 million transactions, excuse me, about 485,000 transactions in a given day, which was approaching all-time highs for Avalanche. So it seemed like there was a huge uptick in activity. And again, when we come back today, you know, we've now seen about two and a half, two point three million transactions in uh, in one day on the November nineteenth period, and so you usually see about five or so million transactions in a given week for Avalanche, and that's like an all time high level, right? But now we're seeing two million in a day, and uh, our dashboards refresh on a daily basis. So the the current rolling total today is about another four million transactions, so even a new all time high. So three consecutive all time highs in a row when it comes to transaction count. Now, the interesting thing here is that would signify to most people, oh, like people are competing for block space, so fees must be skyrocketing. <laughs> but if we look at the average fee, it's actually plummeted from, you know, on average somewhere around about 0, 0.005 AVEX to the, the most recent period, it was 0.002. So about a 50 or so percent reduction in the average transaction fee. So immediately when I saw that, I was like, okay, something's afoot. This doesn't really add up. You know, if you go look at the, the transactions table, the most uh, the most used transactions right now, or excuse me, the most used contracts are like Trader Joe, typical liquidity pools, right? So it wasn't adding up. And so I started tearing through the transactions and actually realized that it was Avalanche ASC20s. Now, you've probably never heard of ASC20s, and that's for good reason, because they're they're effectively spam transactions. Um, they're, they're really just Bitcoin ordinals on Avalanche. And you'd probably ask yourself, well, why do I need ordinals on a network that has smart contracts and can support NFTs? And that's a great question. <laughs> There's really not a good answer. Um, so you can see, we've seen about 6.8 million transactions minting these ASC20s. Um, and we're seeing about 200,000 every hour, which is an insane clip of, of these minting transactions. And that's been really doing an impressive number. So that in terms of transaction count, that's doing about 95, 96, 97% of total transaction volume on Avalanche. And it, taking up only about 70, 72% of all Avalanche gas. So they're doing an insane number of transactions, but not driving that much value back to Avalanche. Uh, so 100% of transaction fees on Avalanche are burned. Um, but you're, you know we're not really capturing much of that value, given the fact that they're just really, really cheap transactions. And so all this is really doing to mint an ASC20 um, yeah, we've seen you know pretty me- a nice uptick in in AVAX burn, but you know nothing that's like orders of magnitude above in values we've seen before, as we're seeing in the in the total transaction count. So TLDR here is when you see a top line number like a new all time high in transaction counts, is be a little wary, take it a step deeper, and try to figure out why these things are happening. Uh, because in the case of this uh, specific instance with Avalanche, it's not like network adoption or some meaningful new breakthrough. Uh, it is, it's basically network spam for very, very cheap transactions, sending yourself a string of hex data that is like, you know, arguably minting an NFT in some ways. But again, it's, it's more of like an ordinal. Uh, but we can kick it over to the biggest loser now with Ren. Yeah, I do have a biggest loser and it's fresh off the press. Um, so the biggest loser is BNB Shorters actually. Um, this morning we got news that the DOJ may settle with Binance for upwards of $4 billion. Um, it's a $4 billion fine basically and it'll probably help CZ avoid any potential jail time. The criminal charges that DOJ is basically pressing Binance for is that they offered unregistered securities and also commingled customer funds. As part of the deal, they would obviously let the exchange continue to operate. 
while giving law enforcement potential access to the exchange's database. And the DOJ officials are also interested in lever- leveraging Binance to better monitor illicit financial activity. So obviously a $4 billion fine is like quite a hefty amount. So when the news first came out, evidently price went down. I think it went from, from, from probably $250 to $245 as people piled on the shorts. However, I think a few minutes later, people realized that, wait, it only costs like $4 billion to get DOJ off of me. Sure, I can pay that. Binance is probably easily sitting on $30 billion or $50 billion of cash. And after that, BNB just ripped straight up all the way to that. It's probably trading around 260 right now. Um, So yeah, that's what we have for this week. I, I think for, for a while, the crypto market like didn't really know what to do with that piece of information. They couldn't tell whether it was bullish or bearish, but I guess if it's just a $4 billion, $4 billion fine, then it's pretty bullish in general. Yeah, I think the market's just like clarity here, and that's what we're seeing. That's why we got the the short little dump and then a nice little rally. And four billion dollars, like you said, Ren, isn't all that much money. So, not not surprised to see the the market acting positively to this news, considering I'm sure there's a lot of big players who were like looking at volume makeup and seeing how dominant Binance was, and was pretty worried about that and whether or not it could be worse. When I grow up, I want to have a four billion dollar fine and it not be a big deal. But but more seriously, like I, I mean, what, what do you think this means for Binance's long term, like staying power and potential? Like, if you're, I mean, maybe us as users, Coinbase is kind of probably our premier choice, just given you know we live in the U.S. That's the, the kind of it's just the it's just the one we use for what, one reason or another. Uh, but I'm curious, like, how do you think the rest of the world views this? Is that something that they, you know, are people going to be willing to go back to Binance? I guess is the ultimate question here. Maybe I'm the best to answer this because I'm not best in the U.S. So. Um, I used to be a Binance user, but then when stuff started to come out, which was a bit shady, uh, I did switch like my main centralized exchange to Coinbase. And right now I'm definitely not going back. Like even if they, uh, offer a bit cheaper transactions or, uh, there's more, a bit more liquidity there. I still feel that I'm not willing to risk at the, at least not yet, uh, my funds in that way. So I'm happy to stay with Coinbase. I will add though that I don't know how many centralized exchange users exist today. I, I know Coinbase has 110 million verified users, if I'm not wrong. Binance probably has a similar amount. But one thing to keep note is that new participants, where would they sort of onboard as their sex? I don't know. In, in an ideal world, they don't really have to go through a centralized exchange. But as of today, I still think you kind of have to. Um, but I, I'm not really sure where a new user would onboard that. I know Binance has gotten a lot of regulatory pressure in the EU too. Like they've been getting kicked out of random countries in the EU and Africa, like left and right. So perhaps Coinbase is the household name these days. Do you all know if uh, this has more to do with Binance US than it does Binance International though? That's that's one angle that's really not clear to me at all. My gut reaction is that it's kind of for both entities, both the US and the international because um, obviously one thing is a commingling of customer funds and so that would like evidently apply to both Binance entities and I would think uh, DOJ would also want access to like Binance International's like exchange database or leveraging it to monitor like illicit activity that that would only make sense. Yeah, I think that's probably probably the case, Ren. But moving over to some governance updates, um, 
I guess this one to start out with is is more just comedy, to be honest. But Sam Altman was uh, fired or removed from the CEO position at OpenAI. And then I think it was like 700 out of the 770 employees over there signed a letter saying that they were going to quit <laughs> if uh, Sam Altman wasn't hired back. So uh, he wound up within 24 to 48 hours getting hired back as CEO. And uh, I think Microsoft is playing a more active role there now that they own a majority stake, I believe. Maybe, Ren, I think you have a, a better feel for what's going on in this situation, but do you have anything to add there? Yeah, uh, I think what happened is Sam Altman got kicked out. Either like he wanted to just con- continue to push on um, and ship without caring about like AI safety concerns, and the board did not want to, so they kicked him and the other guy out. Uh, and as of this morning, I think at three AM, the Microsoft CEO Sadia tweeted out that Sam Altman is joining um, Open. Uh, sorry, Sam Altman is joining Microsoft to lead their advanced AI research department. And, and it's kind of weird because Microsoft had previously promised to give OpenAI up to ten billion dollars in Azure credits, probably to train their models. But yeah, I think there were a lot of comments on Twitter that were saying how OpenAI, this whole fiasco, made Dow governance look division. And honestly, it was like a shit show. It was like everyone was being live streamed updates from like 10 different people on Twitter over the weekend about where Sam Elman was going, how everyone was like not informed, how people are starting to quit. Um, however, I do think something similar happens in crypto sooner or later. There's going to be like a $100 billion company and there's going to be like this massive showdown between like different factions of the DAO or people are going to get voted out. I'm actually not sure how much a DAO has the power to kick out a contributor I would guess today like that's not really a thing a DAO can do but if it is that would be hilarious and it would definitely will happen like someday and it'll probably be a movie maybe you can't kick them out but you can definitely stop paying them and that's effectively the same thing or else you're getting work for free and maybe they wouldn't be complaining at that point I feel like Doquan could be a good example of that too I mean he kind of got ousted by the Cosmos community back in the day, but he still lingers around and, and gives his opinions everywhere. <laughs> hey, Jaquan. Yeah, yeah, Jaquan. Jeez, Doquan. That's a much different character. <laughs> yeah, the PTSD scar of the Luna, the Luna days. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But uh, moving on to the next governance update, we've got Sushi looking to update their tokenomics. The goal is to more optimally distribute emissions so that way there's not as much extraction just on the Sushi token itself. They want to increase Sushi utility, better reward LPs, and overall just create a more sustainable model over the long term. Personally, I mean, I feel like I've been hearing about Sushi tokenomics redesigns for the last year and a half and and nothing's come of it. And uh, yeah, I just, I never use Sushi myself. I don't know if you guys do. So I, I don't have a whole lot of hope for this one, but if anyone has any, any educated takes to say on this matter, speak up. And that's a no. <laughs> no one wants to talk to you. All right, we'll move over to Ave. Uh, Ave is looking to add Curve USD markets to V3 on Ethereum. Dan, can I get your comment here? I know you always want to talk Curve USD. Yeah, jeez, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. Uh, I mean, it's it's definitely interesting. Um, you know, for Ave, adding more assets is generally the right direction. Of course, the risk parameters you put around those assets is important to consider. And then for Curve, it's definitely beneficial for CRV USD. Right, the for the health of the peg, you want as many places as possible for those tokens to flow to, right? You want them to be in silo. You want them to be in curve. You want them to be in compound. Any sort of leverage is a great spot um, for these tokens to go run and hide in, basically. 
Uh, so yeah, it's definitely exciting for CRV USD, which is now at a new all-time high in borrowed supply at about 160 million. So it's still some healthy growth. I think the the flipping moment there would be a, a big landmark or a big watermark for any like on-chain stablecoin be flipping like LUSD maybe. Of course, that's kind of going the other way while, while, while CRV USD is increasing its circulating supply. So uh, I think that's about two two fifty million in circulating market cap is uh, LUSD. So that's kind of the the next roadmap or there maybe the next uh, landmark for CRV USD. Yeah, I'm pretty excited to see like uh, the the curve USD growth throughout like a, a raging bull market. That one's super exciting. I can understand why you always want to talk about it, but uh, this one's this one's not a, exactly a governance update per se. But Synapse is adding support for Solana um, for all the ETH folk who are trying to figure out the best way to bridge over there. I also tried out Mayan Exchange, is I believe what it's called. That was pretty smooth, but someone else on our team said it wasn't as pleasant of an experience bridging back from Solana over to Ethereum. So. Uh, maybe check out Synapse if you're looking for that. Uh, this one was pretty interesting, actually. Indexed Finance. It's an older project, and it has about a market cap of 200k, uh, only 200k, I should say. And they had about 40,000 die remaining in their community treasury, and someone thought no one was looking, and they tried to pass an on-chain vote on Tally to liquidate that treasury to themselves. Um, but unfortunately, for the person who was this witty to do so. They uh, rallied support from old token holders basically to deny the proposal and are now trying to figure out what they should do with the 36,000 die that, that remains there. I don't know. This kind of brings up a, a better topic. Do you guys think this is like kosher to do? Like personally, I think yes, because if no one's watching then and that money's just sitting there, then then why not? Like that guy was witty enough to pull that off. But I can also definitely see how it's not morally ethical, if you will. I would say it's definitely fair game you know um ideally ideally in a functional DAO, you have like delegates you have involved folders people that constantly like are on top of all proposals although we know that that is very very far from the truth but from like a mechanism design perspective like yeah i don't think this guy did anything wrong um i'm not sure whether the proposal was to distribute the entire community treasury to all token holders or like distribute it all to himself himself if it's, if it's a ladder then sure like the intentions are wrong but like assuming you had to engage out you know like it, it should be voted down so i don't think you, you should be free to propose whatever you want however ridiculous it is Interesting, interesting. Sounds like you have some Coda, Coda's Law fans in the crowd today. But um, I, I don't know. I, I definitely see where you're coming from on this. But like, it's definitely a little sketchy, right? RFV or risk free value trades are that's a thing. You know, we've seen it most recently announced. Down, I think was probably the the biggest one. But uh, DCF God is made famous for these trades, and they make a lot of sense, right? You the 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 roadmap for the DAO is falling apart. There's no one pushing it forward, so. Let's just wind down the entity and return whatever value there is to the stakeholders, which are the token holders. Seems fair. Makes a lot of sense. Whether there, I could definitely see why, as a developer, you know, you could see your, you know, your your child that you created like being wound down. That would certainly be unfortunate. Um, but like that's the risk you run when you make a governance token and distribute it to everybody. Now, doing an RFV for yourself. That, that definitely seems like uh, you're trending the other direction there. I, I don't know, like legally, how you'd break that down. But if they, you know, if they're just buying tokens on the free market and then they use those tokens to vote for themselves to push this proposal through, it's definitely interesting. And it was a pretty narrow margin, as you mentioned, Sam. So like, I, I, it's like, does this person just go buy more tokens and try again? I don't know. 
Yeah, I mean, for me, it kind of reminds me of a, like a hostile takeover in Tradify, and there's nothing wrong with that. True, um, it's kind of, or the reason why someone is doing is this kind of, I don't know, backwards or like a bad reason. Um, but it would be even cooler if they like to go over the DAO and then started like turning around the project or whatever. Then we'd started to get into like the private equity realm of, of crypto, which would be cool to see coming over at some point. Yeah, it does seem like the intentions were very malicious here, but that's a very interesting angle as if they, you know, take this treasure for themselves, launch a new protocol and then like, who knows, airdrops, index token holders. I mean, I think you're creating a narrative there, but it's definitely interesting. It's it's a case study, no less. I can talk about the last um, governance update we have here. So Orca's looking to turn on a fee-sage to the Dow Treasury. I think this proposal was put up by Rise Labs, formerly known as Sino Global Cap, infamous VC of the Solana ecosystem. They're proposing to direct 12% of trading fees um, from pools with a feature that's larger than 30 bips. Um, it's nothing crazy. Orca has been the number one DEX by trading volume for the past 18 months. Apparently, they capture more than 70% of all LP fees generated on Solana and more than 90% of LP fees generated on altcoins on Solana. So I'm not sure what the status is of that proposal. I'm not too familiar with Orca's general governance process, but I wouldn't be too surprised to see this going through, especially considering it's just going to the Dow Treasury. It's not being redistributed to token holders straight away. Um, I did find something interesting, which is completely unrelated. Orca has a climate fund where 1% of trading fees goes to this climate fund. And it's like uh, basically like an ESG investing fund. I'm not sure what like a relatively small DEX, why they have a climate fund, but I just thought it was interesting. Um, I will put it out there that my take is ESG is a complete scam. I would second that notion. I, I find this uh this proposal pretty interesting though, because obviously Dan, I don't know if you I think it was last week or the week before you were just talking about how absolutely brutal it was to unwind a convex position and the gas fees were so expensive to unwind the position that it almost ate up half the yield that you earned over, you know, a year. And granted the position size wasn't that small, you were just experimenting. But I think that Solana Dexes do have more of an opportunity to charge LPs because the gas fees are affordable. So you can actually Almost like the Uniswap front-end fee. No one who knows what they're doing it with size is going to go through that. But I do think if you're an LP with a 1000 or less dollars, you're going to definitely go LP over um, on Orca as opposed to maybe Uniswap on Ethereum. And then having those those fees actually get returned to to the protocol and then also hurting mid-O LPs, if you will, Like I think you can just kind of get away with it better. Maybe that's a terrible take, but nonetheless, I like the value accrual uh, over there in Solana. I don't know what like the LVR calculation looks like for Orca specifically. I know it looks it's positive for for Phoenix the like the limit order book exchange on Solana, and I would imagine it's it's definitely not as bad for Orca LPs because of the shorter block times. I like removes a lot of the issues we see uh, with LPs on Ethereum. Having those twelve second, second block times opens the window uh, for a lot of the LVR to occur because the shorter block times you get more trades, and so like. If there's a 1% move over 12 seconds, but the price went up a half percent, down a half percent, and then to hit the uh, the up full percent and ending point, you'd get to trade in, in between that, that, that move. And so that creates more fees, so you get less LVR. So 
I don't know if the Orca pools are like positive LVR or like a good place to be for LPs. Uh, but you're right, Sam. I think directionally it does make sense. And this is probably if if let's say it's negative though, and and LPs are losing, and now they're going to be losing more. And this is let's say Orca is kind of just like doing this, you know, this fee uh, return to the Dow. Anyways, it'd be a good experiment for Uniswap if Orca loses zero LPs, then. For whatever reason, maybe people are just willing to lose money and keep continue being an LP in this protocol that plays a key role in the Solana Dex exchange landscape. I mean, the other thing there is, I wonder how because now with like Phoenix Live and OpenBook back up in action, you know there is like there are LO, like uh, limit order book exchanges that are live today, and like theoretically those are going to be much more performant when they're like fully or when they're as mature as say AMMs have become. So it'd be funny to just kind of like see the trade-offs there and say like, all right, maybe all trades are going to get routed through uh, these limit order books anyway. So let's at least try to get some revenue while we still can before we have to go build a new product. Time for a good uh, section to jump to Hot Seat Cool Drone. Rand, maybe you can kick this off. Yeah, sure. I'll kick us off with uh, DYDX. So over the weekend, um, DYDX had a bit of a also fiasco, so to say. They lost $9 million from their insurance fund, which was roughly 40% of the insurance fund. So, like, qu- quite a hefty amount, to be honest. I think the insurance fund started off at $21.5 million. It stands at around $13 million today. Uh, basically, what happened is that someone, quote-unquote, manipulated the urine markets on DYDX, and the open interest spiked from $0.8 million to $67 million, which is a pretty considerable increase. And I think no other perp that had anything close to the amount of open interest on DYDX. Um, if you track the funds on chain, you can see that this position was split across many wallets, but it kind of originated from one single source, suggesting that a single actor was behind this quote-unquote manipulation. Um, the similar actor attempted a similar thing on the sushi market a few weeks ago. And basically, in response, the DYDX team or whoever manages DYDX V3, it's a bit confusing these days, um, increased the initial margin ratios for altcoin markets. They actually increased it before this attack, but then I guess that wasn't sufficient for the amount of open interest that was present on DYDX. Um, Antonio basically reported this to the FBI. I'm not sure what for. They say they're not going to negotiate with the attacker. It looks like they want to pursue this like in a legal means um, and they see this as a form of market manipulation and there was actually a very interesting debate on Twitter between Kane versus Antonio uh, Kane from Synthetics say that DX has never been decentralized they've been run like a San Francisco fintech startup and decentralized tech is catching up and it's hard to pivot a culture of top-down hierarchical decision-making processes and Kane basically further say that the pivot from Starkware to Cosmos had zero input from community. And Antonio basically responded by saying, how you make serious technical progress is not by getting the committee of most of the token holders to agree. And he basically just straight up said, and I think that I'm quoting him here, he doesn't care what token holders think of the product. He just cares what the user thinks. So it's just like really interesting discussion on on one hand this Kane and Antonio discussion is kind of like separate from like the whole like user owner community and how much of a say they should have in sort of a product development roadmap and I think the other larger discussion just based on this specific incident is what really counts as market manipulation for a perfect or any DeFi protocol to be honest like you, you can make an argument that the fault doesn't lie 
with the exploiter or the attacker, you know, DYDX should have recognized that perhaps there's a lot more liquidity for Yearn on off-chain venues such as Binance or other centralized exchanges. And because of that, some risk manager, whether that's a DAO, a service provider, or DYDX themselves should have recognized that and limited the initial, uh, sorry, increased the initial margin ratio enough so that this should have never happened in the first place. Or for example, they should have capped the open interest to much lower than what it is and likewise. That should have never happened in the first place. I put out a tweet that basically say, in a fully decentralized protocol, market manipulation is just a failure of mechanism design. It should not exist and furthermore, should not be punished. I'm guessing some people may agree with this statement and I'd love to hear you guys' thoughts. I mean, we have we have that take combined with uh, you should be able to raid uh, Dow Treasury as a token voter. Ren, I don't know. I don't know, man. I don't know about these takes, but... The DYDX thing is definitely interesting because there seems to be like, you know, there should have been tighter risk params. And the DYDX or the Antonio and Kane discussion, I think, is a great talking point here just because it's so interesting to kind of play out those two different sides because I think they're both right. And it's just a matter of the road you want to take. Personally, I'm at, specifically at the app layer, I'm very, very for progressive decentralization. So let's think of like a token distribution where, you know, 60% of the token goes to the community and 40% goes to team and investors. I honestly want the team to have a vast majority of voting power at the early onset of the protocol. Again, specifically at the app layer. I think for L1s and L2s, it's a different conversation for like general purpose chains. Uh, and we can have that discussion at a different point. But at the app layer, I want the team pushing forward that product. Like That's how you're going to get the best results. That's been proven time and time again in human history. Yes, there will be exceptions to this. But largely, I, I, I'm bullish the team continuing to build their thing. Let the devs dev. Uh, and so because of that, that's why, that's why I think you're kind of seeing it already play out where you're seeing smaller airdrops and more incentive programs, right? If you can incentivize a very specific action from your user base, whatever the needs of your protocol are. So like in the case of a perp deck, since you know, generally trading, we see that or, or adding liquidity on the market making side. If you can incentivize those behaviors for a longer period of time, I, I I struggle to see how you will be, do better by just airdropping your whole token dis allocation to your community on day one. And so, again, that's why it's kind of tangential here, but I think the idea of progressive decentralization is quite powerful. Um, you know, I, I tweeted out uh, at, at Kane and Antonio, so we're going to try to get them on. So definitely, if you're uh, if you're still listening here, definitely go engage with that tweet and uh, get those fellows on here. It'd be a really fun discussion. And I think constructive for this space as well, because again, I think they're both right. Uh, it's just a matter of the road you want to take. I think it's also interesting that DYDX removed the USDC staking module for like insurance, like related activities, it, just like this scenario. It makes me wonder with full decentralization of DYDX and as it's coming and continually, de continually decentralizing, do they need some type of, um, I guess, USDC staking modules so that way it can cover any shortfalls in the insurance fund that they've accrued to date? Or should the token somehow be wound in here? and be used for the, the insurance fund to give it extra utility. Obviously, that would be pretty recursive. I don't really know what the right answer is here, but I do think like trusting the community to direct a portion of the revenue that's flowing to validators and stakers to an insurance fund. So basically responsibly saying, hey, guys, we need to you know think about the longevity here and allocate 10% of all revenue, which is going to lower everyone else's yield, put it in the insurance fund. So that way, you know, when things like this happen, we're covered. I, 
I, I find it hard to believe that token holders vote for that. Well, see, this goes back to the when do you distribute profits to token holders argument, right? Like, this is a prime example of when, like, uh, capital distribution should be at the bottom of the stack, and it's ahead. What should be ahead that is exactly this: is funding an insurance fund. And I think I thought the old DYDX insurance fund they had was in DYDX tokens. Is that correct, or do I have that off? It was in DYDX tokens, I think. But they also had a USDC or sorry, USDC staking module as well. So I think there was like two different insurance yeah. fund mechanisms. Because I'm all for having a whatever token, whether it be ETH, whether it be Adder, whether it be USDC, having an insurance fund that's not denominated your native token because having to sell your own native token when there's a shortfall to cover it is a bit dangerous, especially now with V4 Live when it's a staking asset. Like it, it, it has a, plays a key role in network security. And so having, you know, let's say they didn't have an uh, insurance fund live and they had to have they had a shortfall of nine million, and now they have to go sell DYDX, which is a security token for their chain. Like I could see that causing a whole nightmare of scenarios. And um, I think GNS has an interesting, like not really an auction model, but something similar where they've just created a system where that removes price impact from these types of things. And I think you could probably get a creative way to create this. But because it's also a staking asset, so the asset already has utility. It's getting yield from that that product on V4. I don't think you need to kind of say, all right, we need to drive more utility towards the DYDX token. So let's go create this recursive staking module. To your point, Sam, I, I would love to see like an insurance fund denominated in anything other than DYDX. I got to say, though, that um, as like a last resort or, I don't know, uh, protecting the protocol, I like uh, a structure where like the governance token or the native token is used to kind of plug the hole there because then token holders still have some kind of an incentive to think about the protocol and like trying to uh, make it move forward but it shouldn't be the only insurance fund type of uh, mechanism that the protocol implements because that's like super reflexive or it's gonna come and bite you at some point if um, you suddenly become uh, or your your exchanges positions go negative yeah, I would definitely echo that. I think over time observing DAOs, there's two things that you can like more or less mostly assume. The first is that token holders are probably not the smartest bunch of people, especially when it comes to very like complex topics such as like risk management or risk parameters. And second is that most token holders will probably act in their self-interest in general. Um, and then I think this DYDX exploit also partially throws a wrench in a few things. First of all, they had a proposal that passed a few weeks ago that basically updated a lot more listings to be available on DYDX, such as like OP, ARB. Um, I'm not sure whether this potentially throws a wrench in those plans, but I, would be, I wouldn't be surprised if it did, or at least like increase the amount of, for example, open interest caps, or increase the amount of um, initial margin requirements. And another thing that I think it also throws a wrench in is DYDX's permission listing plans. So, Permissionless listing is going to be this big thing for DYDX before. And there's two sort of models that are currently being explored. I think I want to say Chaos or maybe Reverie has a good report uh, or a good forum post out there about the two different models um, that they're exploring. And one thing that this makes me think is like, for example, if the DAO onboards like a risk management provider, for example, Chaos and um, Gauntlet, 
that work with Aave and many other DeFi protocols, is the service provider liable for like anything that happens to the protocol? You know, say the protocol loses like $10 million from the insurance fund because uh, Gauntlet or Chaos or some other risk management provider basically set the parameter like obviously way off, right? Are, are they on the hook for like potential losses there? I'm not sure. I don't think we've seen like a, a case happen yet. The closest thing was probably like the curve situation on Aave, but you couldn't really blame Gauntlet there because the community constantly uh, voted against their like proposals to sort of tighten up their risk parameters. Um, I, I just think that's an interesting question to ask, especially if DYDX wants to go with like a full permissionless listing route someday. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I mean, working for a DAO is definitely not like a full employee relationship at all <laughs> in, in any capacity. But, you know, if you make a bad decision that negatively impacts your company as an employee, like, yeah, you might get fired, but like, unless it was malicious or, you know, blatantly illegal, like, I don't think you're liable for that action. I guess it definitely depends, right? And the, I'm sure the medical field is probably much different than like, I don't know, the accounting world even, which is still probably like, again, if you intentionally misrep, if you're an accountant and you intentionally misrepresent a number in a financial statement, uh, like you're going to lose your license and you're definitely going to be like jobless. But I, again, I don't know if there's legal rep. I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah. This also makes me think of a, a funny like comparison to like some trading companies. I've heard stories. I don't know whether they're rumors or not, but some trading companies, like it doesn't matter if you lost like millions or billions on a trade. All that matters was that in theory, the expected value of your trade was positive. And so basically the company said, you didn't do anything wrong. You took a trade where the expected value was positive. It's chill, you know, like with enough trades across the entire company, we're still going to make like billions and billions of dollars. And I wonder if there's like a potential similar situation for service providers in Dallas. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting thought experiment. I guess we need a, an employment lawyer to, to hop on here and give us some real answers. But uh, Brick, who do you got this week? Yeah, for this week's hot seat, I've got the um, maker down and like more specifically how they're handling their uh, USDC peg stabilities or peg stability modules liquidity. Um, so for those who don't know, the peg stability module just, just lets you or a user swap DAI one-to-one against the token that's in the BSM and in this case it's USDC. Um, and the maker at the moment has, a, I guess, a mandate, you could call it, where... If the PSM and then two like GUNI pools are below 300 uh, millions in liquidity, then Maker has to withdraw USDC from one of its RWA vaults, uh, more specifically the Coinbase custody vault, and increase the total liquidity to 400 million. And then conversely, if um, the PSM and the two GUNI uh, pools are above 500 million then maker deposits uh usdc into the into the coinbase custody uh, account and brings back the sum to 400 million uh and how it works in practice is that there's this old like forum post um where the ceo of monetalis monetalis i'm not sure how you pronounce that but uh, he basically alerts the trustee 
and everything happens manually, which of course means that it takes some time. And um, I kind of scrolled through the forum uh, and historically has taken some time uh, for like the notification even go online, uh, which of course isn't ideal. And I think it's kind of funny when we always talk about like tokenized RWAs and how they enable uh, like new use cases and all of this like innovative stuff. But then uh, how these pro processes really work is that it's still done manually because yeah, you still have to get off chain somehow. Um, and yeah, on top of that, it, it also takes some time for like, of course, the uh, funds in the Coinbase vault to like move around because you have to go from like cold storage to uh, a hot wallet. And uh, if there's really like a liquidity problem and maker still wants to um, like defend that, you could be in some trouble after a while. Um, and yeah, why I'm talking about this is because recently there's been a lot of volatility uh, within the USDC PSM. Um, and I guess there's been a few wallets who have like, I don't know if you can call it attacking, but kind of deliberately been doing some shady stuff in there, um, which has led to like the Coinbase custody vault being almost drained completely uh, around a week ago. And this means that um, like Maker is suffering uh, like revenue wise because these vaults uh, create yield for the protocol while USDC that's in the PSM doesn't really create any revenues. Um, but yeah, now the pools or the two G unit pools and the PSM is back to around 590 mil. So um, now in theory, makers should like um, initiate a new uh, transfer to the Coinbase custody pool. So, or the Coinbase custody, uh, I don't know what account. Um, yeah. Any thoughts on this? Yeah, I think it really points to like an inefficient setup for how Maker has to deal with these. And, you know, they were the first person to really pioneer uh, how to back die with RWAs. And so it's, you know, kind of makes sense that that wouldn't be, you know, a super efficient to somewhat clunky operation right now. Um, the most interesting iteration I've seen on that model, I think, is Frax with FinRes PBC. Of course, it's not really live and up and running yet. Uh, right now, I believe SFrax is just backed by SDI, ironically. Um, yeah, I haven't checked to see if that's changed over the last couple of weeks, but that, that was the situation. Now, if, if you fast forward and assume that that gets up and running and is working effectively, then that kind of seems like there's probably a good chance that it's a more efficient system of doing the, you know, quite a similar thing, right? There's only one entity that needs to be communicated with, and they're basically part of the core Frax team, right? So instead of having to go from my company to your company and have a line of communication between us that we can both respond to, it's just going, you know, Rick, you and I work for the same company, so we can already have an open line of communication. And I, I do think that will create some efficiencies. I just think one counterparty uh, is definitely pro, or doesn't does a better job on the the efficiency standpoint. Of course, there's a trade-off there, and there is more risk because you're consolidated around one entity. Uh, but as far as it pertains to Maker, Brick, like, are you concerned about the make? Are you concerned about the die peg, or is this more of just like a top line revenue problem, right? Because if they're withdrawing from the Coinbase fault, obviously there's no longer earning yield, and thus revenue is going down. Yeah, I think at least for now, for me, it's more of a revenue problem. Um, there's still it's pretty easy to uh, withdraw your die, or like, um, how would I put this? 
uh, like send your die back to maker and then have your over collateralized positions come back. Like it still isn't really a problem about if the token or the stable coin is collateralized or not. It's more about, okay, now we have a venue where we can trade die against another stable coin one to one. So, uh, yeah, like big trades won't affect the peg as much, which I understand that, or I think what maker is doing well is like, even though the process is pretty inefficient, they're still um, focusing on what's the most important part, which is keeping diet at like $1 peg, because if that starts slipping and suddenly you lose investor confidence or like holder confidence, then a bank run might occur. And then, yeah, everything can go downhill pretty, pretty quickly from there. Uh, completely separate point, but I think these off-chain, on-chain interactions are going to become increasingly common in the future, especially as RWAs or tokenization takes off. Um, you know, it's like if something on-chain, something has to happen off-chain, or if something off-chain, something has to happen on-chain. I'm, I'm not sure if there's a way to decentralize that, but maybe there's a future in which, for example, like, a protocol has a smart contract and then it uses a storage proof to basically prove that the two uh, GUNI proofs and the USDC liquidity in the PSM are less than, say, 500 million, right? And then you call like this decentralized API through like a keeper network to move these funds from this like off-chain custody protocol and do whatever you need with it. Um, That seems a bit far-fetched for now but it could be something that's explored pretty heavily as like tokenization and RWA take off just because that's always been a concern, you know, like sure, like tokenizing these assets is great, but at the end of the day, uh, you're still relying on custodians off-chain and I think we've seen a host of problems with custodians off-chain before, even with all of, you know, like whatever, like this is bankrupt protected, it's an independent trust, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and it's tough because you still have this like middlemen in the process and the amount of entities you could use as a middleman is quite limited, I would say still. So there's not like, there's this problem that those people who are getting paid for this don't really want to lose that position. So there's not really a lot of push to, you know, uh, like put the industry forward or make these ideas a reality at least yet, but we'll see what happens. Yeah. My only take on this is I'm pretty bearish on like real world assets over the near term to medium term. I just like, we need like regulatory clarity and understanding who actually has claims on the assets in the event of like a bankruptcy or a default or like forced liquidation. I just have zero confidence as a token holder that owns a real world asset on chain in quotations. Like, actually has any rights to the underlying asset in the real world. So I'd just be pretty careful until we have the the regulatory clarity that we need there. Yeah, I mean, some places already have that, but I think the larger problem here is that it's so easy to like redeem assets on chain that um, if there's even a small fear of a default or like the collateral being undervalued or whatever, then like everybody will pull their, pull their liquidity, which there's still more friction in like the real world when people's people want to run to the bank and like take their money out. You you get what I'm saying? Yeah, that's actually a, a very good point. Dan, did you have something else to add there? Or should I hop into my cool throne? I was going to say you should hop into your cool throne. 
All right, cool, cool. Yeah, I got a uh, Vertex Traders in the Cool Throne. I've been talking about Vertex for quite a while now. I actually wrote a report on them in the beginning of August when traders were earning VRTX tokens at like a four to five cent value. The LBA just concluded, which priced the token at 31 cents. So a nice little five to seven X for those who participated. And they currently have about $4 million of monthly incentives between the ARB step that they won and the VRTX token incentives that go out every single epoch, which is roughly 28 days. The ARB incentives get paid out at the end of every week. We've already seen a couple large sex listings. Um, and I expect, you know, one of the giants between Coinbase and Binance at some point to list this. Uh, I've also heard from their co-founder on an AMA recently that there are some projects integrating or building alongside Vertex. So there soon will be triple token incentives, which is pretty attractive. Um, and I also did some backup knack and math for Block BlockWorks research subscribers. And I'm guessing USDC, um, the yield paid out in USDC, the stakers will end up giving a yield to Vertex at the current valuation of 30, 30% or so. So pretty attractive for people looking for yield paid out in USDC. Um, I'm just pretty excited about Vertex. I'm interested to see where they go over the course of next year, hoping that they do some cross-chain deployment. I'm definitely eyeing dips. The token starts trading tomorrow, uh, the 21st. So I will be interested if it goes you know, below 15 cents or so, just strictly based on the real yield play. Um, but yeah, I expect volume to continue going up with the ARB incentives, projects building on them, uh, as well as the VRTX token incentives that will go into you know the next five, six years of time. I'm curious with DYDX v4 uh, going live and probably liquid staked uh, DYDX uh, going live alongside. Would DYDX sort of set like a baseline perp dex yield across crypto? Because obviously, like there, there's a few perp dex models, right? You have like sort of GMX where you have European GMX and you have that thirty uh, that seventy thirty split, and then you have like SNX where SNX is a token backing the liquidity on the exchange so you only really need to return value to that one set of token holders and then you have dydx out here which you may get a portion of trading fees you get a portion of or actually i think you get a hundred percent of like everything basically uh if i'm not wrong so and then you have like vertex out here which is like kind of in the middle of everything um so it'd just be interesting to see how all of these prop decks models and staking yield play out but i suspect the perfect wars gets like really heated up especially as you go into the bull market uh, i don't think we've ever seen like perfect adoption in a full-fledged bull market a lot of the activity and growth that we've seen has been in relatively like muted and low liquidity market conditions yeah and i also think that it's a pretty easy narrative to hop on or if you're even a bit newer to the space like if you think about what coins you want to hold, it's pretty easy to like jump into the Vertex world and understand the business models. At the end of the day, it's not that, or the mechanisms aren't that like complicated. And uh, a big pl a, a big plus is that uh, these exchanges are usually pretty cash flow generative. So it's not just like tokenomics and free yield coming from native tokens, but there's like a real business model underlying the the protocol i also add that i think in the bear market we've slowly seen the rise of pre-launch futures and perps on like meme coins i think pre-launch futures the two exchanges that have been doing it the most are hyper liquid and avo i don't know how much like market share dominance they've gotten just based on these pre-launch futures and like meme coin perps but i would 
guess in a bull market or like more exciting market conditions, they probably gain like a larger amount of market share just based on the fact that there's probably more airdrops, there's probably more meme coins and they stand to capture a larger portion of that trading activity. Yeah, definitely something to watch in the future. It's just going to be interesting how well the liquidity will scale, especially on those like free market futures, because you need to have pretty robust market makers in order to make that work on in scale. Like even if you look at, I, I'm guessing Abo is the largest uh, pre market futures place, and it's not that like it's impressive what they're doing, but the trading volumes aren't anything mind blowing right now. On the token side, Sam, I know they used an LBA. Like, how how was that? How'd that go for them? Are you are you excited about how the LBA went? Was it net positive for the token and in the protocol? Like, what's your take around the LBA? And maybe explain briefly what an LBA is. Not anything about it. Yeah, absolutely. LBA is a liquidity bootstrapping auction and basically just lets the community set um, the price naturally, as opposed to and gives everyone the same price, which is nice. So basically, you could deposit five days USDCE. Or you could deposit um, vertex tokens that had been earned over the course uh, over the course of the previous six months, and then at the end of the LBA, they're fused together to form a pool, and then obviously the ratio determines the price. I think it went pretty well. I'm expecting. I mean, there's 100 million tokens at Genesis. 13 million got deposited in the LBA alongside 4 million USDC, roughly. So there's 87 million vertex waiting to be claimed and likely dumped, in my opinion. Uh, right when that gets started trading on Tuesday, today's Monday. So unfortunately, this comes out on Wednesday. So you guys will have kind of missed that part of everything, but maybe look back and see if I was right. But I'm expecting a lot of people to dump that token because they don't really understand the USDC real yield play. So I think that there's going to be an opportunity to pick it up a lot cheaper. And like maybe the yield would be implied at 60, 70, 80% paid out in USDC. And I think just if you look at GMX or... You know, we can't really see it with DYDX yet, but I do think there's going to be like a baseline yield where people are like, all right, if I can earn 25% paid out in an exogenous collateral, like I'll take that up any day. So I think there's a, a chance that we start to see some of these perp tokens, especially for the reason that Brick said, you know, they're very cash flow generative. I think that there's decent floors on some of these. And especially when you pair in incentives on top of the native tokens, like our um, and maybe third-party tokens building on top of it. It just seems like a, a pretty easy play. But I will note um, the team on this one vests after a six-month cliff, and then they vest over two years. So that's like a lot more aggressive and short of a timeline than most of these projects. Yeah, good flag there for sure. And um, I, I, I liked your explanation of the LBA there. It's going to be interesting. I think we're going to see a lot more LBAs, a lot more fair launch type plays, a lot more potentially the revival of the ICO era. I think that that's something to watch for in the, in the coming months here. But uh, with the final cool throne of the day, I've got, I, I got crypto gaming in the cool throne, man. This is one that I've, I'm definitely firmly in the camp of. It's still quite shit, but, but the reality is there's some cool things coming online that I want to flag here. So I'll start small and end big. Uh, Duel Arena is a little 1v1 dueling game. You got different items that have different statistics and you can kind of just like, you know, RuneScape duel style, uh, different people in an online way pretty cool you can like bid you can bid tokens you can you know you can bid uh any in-game items it kind of reminded me of, of runescape where you know you f walk up to someone right click on them press trade and then you like agree to terms and then you have this duel it's pretty cool uh, there's only been about five thousand battles but it was a relatively smooth experience just kind of playing around with it then we have friend pet which this one also i believe is on base but don't quote me on that one um 
started a while ago actually but it was this like tamagotchi like game with you're trying to like keep a virtual pet alive a bit silly but the token has ran up multiples to a 16 million fdv um you know we're seeing this like era of like indie game styles kind of start to these games are starting to like pick up a little bit of steam and i think this is something you're seeing in the you know traditional gaming sector as well as you know it's not all triple games triple a uh, studios building games there's some smaller guys that are building things that people actually want to play as well uh, Lattice, who has actually made notable for creating the MUD framework, which is like this scalable way to build on-chain games, actually just announced a its own L2. So it's L2 season. We're getting a lot more of them. And, uh, you know, they advertise it as a cost-effective way to build on-chain games, worlds, and other ambitious applications. Uh, for us, the first thing I checked was like, all right, what's a tech stack? OP stack chain going to be part of the super chain as well. Uh, so maybe bullish for super chain adoption there. Uh, but it'll be cool to see kind of this like L2 very focused on gaming. I don't really know how it's going to play out, but we will definitely be watching. Uh, now getting up to the bigger boys, Alluvium, actually the arena PVP trailer just watched and the graphics look incredible on the trailer. You know, I will note that this was not a gameplay tra trailer. It was just like a, you know, a footage trailer, if you will, where they're trying to create hype for the game. Uh, I'm definitely intrigued. Alluvium has been, um, you know, long been the crypto game that's going to actually execute on the the prophecy of making a fun game to play so we will see definitely gonna pay attention for that one don't have a launch date for you but definitely go watch the trailer and then now the big one uh ren and i was set out on a quest a couple months ago we were like we are going to find the crypto game that does it all and we stumbled into the project awakening and the second i found it i was like this is it this is it and and i think ren's uh ren's with me on this one but we'll have to get his take so Project Awakening is a crypto, or I would say a more of a blockchain-based game built by the creators of EVE Online. EVE Online is like a 10-plus year running MMORPG game. So huge, huge game that's been around forever. It has staying power, and much of that has to do with the economics that they built around the game. Uh, we'll put this link in the show notes, but there's a great uh, interview with the guys from A16Z, A16Z and then uh, one of the founders of of the development studio and he just walks through you know his experience between for building this massive game called eve online uh you know uh and once you hear him talk about this i was like all right like if anybody is going to build the crypto game that actually works it is going to be this man because he, you can tell that he's like got these battle wounds from building this game and like how you should build in-game economies and how that only some parts should touch physical value and like how you create that. And he also ultimately talks about uh, some of the very interesting ways that blockchains actually do solve game uh, pay points for games. And, and uh, it's like something that we love to say is like, Oh, you know, you can get ownership or, or random things like this. But he was like, no, here's why it's going to be better. And so definitely recommend checking this out. I will put the link in the show notes again, but uh, Ren, maybe if you can share some of your uh, excitement around project awakening as well. Yeah, quick, I think... What's this built on? Well, Project crazy. Awakening? Yeah. TBD, we have, we have no idea yet. So they, I, I guess the, I missed the news, uh, the news announcement there while I was just so excited about talking about the game. Um, but the they're just now launching their phase two of the testing uh, uh the testing mechanism. And so it's about a 2,000-person application, and you have to get approved. So they're only, they're looking for people that have certain qualities. It's like an actual form you have to fill out about your like thoughts about games and crypto. It was pretty interesting, actually. 
I am like very desperate to get on this playlist because I want this like open world game that has a vibrant in-game economy where like things uh, it's just going to be like so in-depth. I don't know. I was I was in love with RuneScape. I love the economy side of RuneScape. I think that's a lot of people in crypto. And I think this is like designing that flawlessly is a nearly impossible task. And somebody who's already done it for a non-crypto game, I just think has such a good chance of doing it for a crypto game. Yeah, echoing what Dan said there, I think no other video game in the history of like video games has come close to emulating EVE Online's economy, especially the complexity, sophistication, and the functionality. Um, they constantly make the news. They have battles where like six figures or close to seven figures worth of like ships are destroyed. Like they're really big events. They have factions. They have politics, exports, imports, manufacturing. And I think a, a lot of the reason why people are attracted to crypto are sort of these like economic experiments that you get to test out in this sandbox environment. And I see Project Awakening as like the second coming of EVE Online. Given EVE Online's success, there is definitely like a humongous, humongous like learning curve. Um, I tried it before and it's just like, like it's like a straight vertical wall made of ice basically. Um, in terms of like the number of actions and the number of things that you can do in that game and how you can like optimize your gameplay. Um, but I'm just really excited to see both the economy in action, whether that's like assets being traded on chain or for example, what type of economy um, they're going to build for this game, but also how they may potentially tie like a token into it. Right. I, I think sure you have like traditional video games where they have their own like in-game currency but that normally is obviously limited to its in-game ecosystem whereas the whole promise of crypto is like composability you can bring that token anywhere and i'm just interested to see like what they potentially do with this like sandbox experiment uh, environment on steroids um having said that i've also tried out star Atlas's game i've tried out their like labs game and also like the full like open world game the open world game is like definitely a lot cooler it's pretty smooth you get to like fly a spaceship you get to shoot the spaceship there hasn't been like much to do in the game it's still like a beta phase but if you go back and watch the solana breakpoint trader where they use the unreal 5 engine it looks incredibly clean so i'm pretty excited for that one too um but yeah i think a lot of us are gamers at heart to be honest uh in crypto and gaming is a huge market especially in asia especially for mobile games like i i feel like pay to earn was kind of just a fad but pay to win is definitely something that people are going to explore very liberally in uh, crypto games especially in the asian market people there are like complete degenerates and like basically imagine like a perp dex trader trading on like a hundred like x leverage but it's just like overweight guy sitting on his sofa spending like a hundred dollars every five seconds just to like boost this like dragon in the game that's like literally like probably half of china um so i'm really excited to find that game too um this like huge mobile game that takes off whatever the form and uh, i do think game five is gonna be a hot sector you know if you had to ask me like why do crypto games need to be on chain or why does it need to involve blockchain to be honest i don't have like a really good answer <laughs> for you uh but i'm just excited to see the development there and hopefully there is some like utility of it being on blockchain rails for EVE Online, was it like a closed economy? Like, could you ever sell your account or your assets on a secondary marketplace? Because I just find that to be 
very, very different between, you know, Web 2 and Web 3 games. Like if you have an economy that anyone can enter and exit at any given time and potentially extract value from that economy, I think it makes it a lot harder of a case to say, like, you can translate what Evil Online did in Web 2 into Web 3. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question. And in this video, this interview, he talks about that. And he's like, yeah, there's a black market and it's a perpetual game of whack-a-mole and it's tough to fight. And so a lot of ways you kind of have to embrace it because it's just going to be there. But the thing that I think is most interesting, and I really don't want to try to like rehash the meaning of this because it's been weeks since I've watched this interview. Um, but he talks about specifically how they value or they think about the value of their in-game currency. So the in-game currency in EVE Online is called ISK. And ISK is not directly redeemable for, for dollars, but it is redeemable for the subscription credits to play the game. And those, the value of the credits to play the game can be changed by the team. So they have like this almost like interest rate lever they can pull where if the economy is running hot, they can make the credits more expensive and that kind of cools it down a little bit. It's very, very interesting about how they think about this. Um, and so like there are these, uh, yeah, I guess I'm just going to end up going on a rant here, but the TLDR is they think about what should be worth real world value. And they do think about how the fact that like, yes, there's black market for, uh, for accounts and like, how do you deal with that? That's super interesting. Brick, do you have a comment there? Yeah, I was a, I was going to say, I, w I was never really like a big, big gamer, but one game I used to play a lot when I was younger was Team Fortress 2. And uh, at one point it became like a free-to-play game. Um, and you couldn't really buy anything that helped you win, but um, at one point they introduced like cosmetics into the game. Uh, you needed to open these key boxes and you needed a key to get those cosmetics and the economy there was like super super simple but it still spurred out to be this quite vibrant um i don't know how to put it like it became a vibrant um economy and there was also like a black market that uh spurred up and um i'm sure it helped like the game um become as popular as it is right now and what i'm trying to say with this is that i think like super complicated economies are super cool but at the same time i'd also want to see a game that goes for just like something very simple because like just put the cosmetics as nfts uh give some keys that you can open boxes with and then like be done with it i'm surprised that there hasn't really like spurred up a game like that that's like it's just super simple to play and then uh you're more focused on like the cosmetic side uh, when you're transacting with the game, so to say. And then I got to say that they, uh, one thing that like they couldn't explicitly um, like control the value in the economy, but you could of course like um, change the drop rates for some like cosmetics and stuff like that. So that then you could see like how key prices would fluctuate based on like what cosmetics people wanted and yeah, I just thought it was super cool. Such simple design. People love looking cool online, and that'll never change, so I agree with you. Yeah, I spent an embarrassingly large amount of money on uh, Fortnite skins back in the day, but we don't have to talk about that. <laughs> I think uh, I think the problem with the cosmetics deal, honestly, is the game has to be like widely distributed. All your friends are playing it all the time, and that's when it's like, all right, cool. Like I'm going to buy this cosmetic so I can look sick in front of my friends. You know, We just don't have that yet. 100% that goes back to the fact we just still need a fun game. <laughs>
Yeah, true, true. Hey, real quick, Brick, I know your uh, grocery store is about to close, but I do want to get your take real fast before we head off on uh, the Pyth airdrop. Bullish, bearish Pyth. Oh, Ren as well. You wrote a great report on it. I'm just curious with that having gone down today, um, how you guys think that'll perform given Link's performance last cycle? Yeah, my opinion is that, okay, but, uh, at the moment, Pit's business model is kind of broken. Like, It's going to be super hard to start paying like the how would i put it let's say call them service providers who provide the data uh for the product itself um for them to like uh basically get paid for what they're giving to the project um and that's a problem with like the whole oracle vertical at the moment it's gonna be you're gonna need so much usage before you become like super profitable Having said that, I think the token has a lot of hype around it, and especially outside the EVM ecosystem, it's the product seems super cool, or like uh, the low latency oracles seem super cool, um, and the market is definitely like hyped around the pit uh, oracles because they're so interconnected with Solana, and of course, what happened there like in the past 30 days or so is going to help it. And I wouldn't be surprised if the like whole project does really, really well in the upcoming cycle. Yeah, I think as uh, Rick said, PIF hasn't exactly made a huge amount of money. Uh, so far, year to date, it's single digit, not even two digits. Uh, if I imagine my report was that. Correctly, so Oracle Radio Crew is definitely still struggling. Having said that, governance has gone live today with the airdrop uh, being claimable. And one of the key points of governance is that they are allowed to determine the fee of a price update. And realistically, I think they'll probably uh, increase that by orders of magnitude, like a thousand percent. Even then, it'll still be like a small percentage of like the transaction gas fee. So there is definitely like a path to profitability in terms of. Pitching Piff against Chainlink, obviously at a peak, Chainlink went to like a pretty crazy market cap in the previous bull run. Um, and Piff is currently trading at a three billion FTV. I want to say with a four hundred and fifty million, or roughly five hundred million market cap. Uh, I do think there's potential there, just on like a relative valuation perspective, not from like a fundamentals. There's not much fundamentals to like investing in the Oracle sector. But having said that, I think the key thing to watch in the coming month is adoption of Chainlink data streams, right? So Chainlink has this huge, not triangle hold, that's maybe not a nice word, but foothold um, over the slightly more like EVM ecosystems. However, their data stream product is very new. One of the first and probably one of the only adopters right now is GMX uh, with its unique fee model where they're sharing 1.2% of fees. If Chainlink's data stream product sees a lot of adoption while PIF's current low latency product, like their growth stagnates, then that's probably not a good thing for PIF just with the brand name that Chainlink has. If PIF can continue their growth, which they've seen like pretty impressive growth in the previous few months, whether that's the number of integration partners or the number of price updates that consumers pull every day, then I think it makes sense from like a relative valuation perspective. Yeah, it's also an interesting vertical because it's easy to misunderstand like how the revenue is really created for these Oracle products or protocols. And then you might have investors who just look at the total value secured chart or whatever. And like in a bull market, when everything goes up, suddenly the Oracle, like 
so-called KPIs also go up and suddenly you have a lot of investors who like um, want to be in these projects and the core idea in itself is pretty easy to explain which is probably why Chainlink also did so well like you just need to have off-chain that data on-chain and everybody kind of understand the fact. Good takes. Appreciate you uh, staying on and risking you missing the grocery store's opening hours. <laughs> Boy needs some some dinner. Let's get you fed. So I think uh, without anything else, uh, thanks for coming on, Ren and Brick. Really appreciate it. Dan, you didn't have anything else there, did you? No, no. I just wanted to give a quick reminder that we do have a awesome Black Rock Friday. I just now figured out what we did there with the pun with Thanksgiving in the U.S. coming up in the next couple of days. Uh, we do have a 20% discount to Das London. Again, that's this March in the in London, as Sam says, the land of pa- tasty pastries. Uh, so be sure to use that code BLACKROCK0X. Uh, again, that's BLACKROCK0X, all caps, no spaces. So thanks again, guys, and we'll see you next week. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning into today's episode. We hope you really enjoyed it. Wanted to take one more moment to remind you guys about our upcoming 2024 Digital Asset Summit in London this March. Seats are limited, so be sure to hit the link in the description and use promo code 0x20 to save 20% off on your ticket. We'll see you in London. Be sure to hit us up if you plan on attending.